core interest is actually not necessarily hermetic. It's actually uh, more hieratic literature, so Egyptian priestly literature, um, and, and also wisdom texts, so sort of the Sabaic tradition in Egyptian sort of hieratic stuff, the Egyptian wisdom literature. Um, there are you know, obvious some parallels with, if we go via all the Demotic Book of Thoth into later Hermetic texts and that, so, so there are some overlaps that I'm studying as well. It's kind of where my primary interest is with Hermetica, is, is, on, is on reconstructing kind of the development of Hermetic ideas from indigenous Egyptian traditions, uh, and then also seeing the extent to which, you know, they're using Middle Platonic language or anything else to communicate those ideas and things like that. It's kind of where I'm at with it, essentially. <laughs> Good. That's a nice niche. Uh, yeah. What is it? Jay Gwynn Griffith uh, or Griffiths um, was kind of like the 20th century person who did that. We mm. we need a nice 21st century person who will do yeah. that. So, but anyway, um, I'll let you fire away. Uh, mm, yeah, let's get into it. Okay. Right, so well, uh, welcome everybody. Thank you uh, for joining us once again. I am uh, here today with a, a very special guest who, of course, needs uh, no introduction if you are a, a scholar or a researcher or a practitioner, um, to the extent that's possible, of Hermitism. Uh, I am here with uh, Dr. David Litwa, who, of course, is uh, the main translator of uh, the Stabaean Hermetica, or Hermetica II, as well as uh, fragments of, of Church Fathers. Um, and various other testimonies of Hermes throughout throughout their antiquity. Um, so, Dr. Litwa, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Absolutely, glad to be here. So let's um, let's get into it. I guess I, I have I have a sort of general list of uh, interview points or questions, and, and then uh, a couple of like minute questions or so for, from members of our community as well. That'll be uh, fascinating to get your get your take on. Um, but I, I think I want to start, I guess, this conversation by I guess defining our scope. Uh, to a certain extent of what exactly well, when we talk about sort of hermetisms or hermetism in late antiquity what exactly are we are we talking about in terms of a, a defined uh system or, or a continuity of ideas essentially so what kind of is our scope when it comes to, to hermetica well i think as in many fields you could talk primarily about ideas or about people it really will change your approach if you start wanting to talk about the sociological movement of hermetics and hermeticism. Um, if you want to talk about ideas, that's a little bit easier because, mm. of course, the ideas are based in the texts, presumably. And although I would not want to talk about a system basically i think you can have any text be hermetic that is attributed to hermes trismegistus hermes the thrice great and that seems to suit people in antiquity pretty well i mean i know that there are systematizers out there who have tried to create like a hermetic systematic theology. Most famously, like André-Jean Festigier wants to kind of present a kind of cosmotheic system. And that's based on mainly prioritizing those 17 or so, depending on how you count them, Byzantine tractates that 
were essentially put together by Christians. And then that gets to be called the Corpus Hermeticum. But as I'd like to say to people, that's not really how an ancient person would approach this material. They wouldn't restrict it to a kind of corpus of defined treatises. They -hmm. certainly wouldn't omit material or prejudge material like the what we call the Stobaean Hermetica. I mean, the Stobaean Hermetica are, are just those hermetic treatises, many of which didn't end up in the Byzantine collection that were excerpted by someone in antiquity. Um, and so they're, they're just as important as the Byzantine collection. We've also got all sorts of hermetic fragments that show up among other people, um, quoted in part by Christian fathers and others. They show up in the Nagamani Library, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what we have to imagine in the ancient world is a lot of texts and materials that's not controlled by anything. There's no publisher of the material. People are writing and reading whatever they can get a hold of. And I don't see a center and a periphery for hermetic texts. So I'm often confused by the modern kind of approach that looks at the corpus hermeticum and makes that the center and everything else the periphery. Everything hermetic is attributed to Hermes Trismegistus, and that's all you need to have mm. something hermetic, in right. my view. Yeah, so it, it, I, I guess it also raises, um, jumping ahead a bit so we can loop around certain things, but um, the question sort of coming up in my mind is is a very prominent question, I guess, in current scholarship of Hermetica around this idea of Hermetic communities and, and how much um, you know how much texts were being written by by communities and and the the phrasing community maybe groups would be better because community kind of has certain notions about it i think people kind of romanticize the idea um but do we have so what, what sort of is the evidence that these texts are circulating through i guess milieus of, of what we can call like what we can call hermetic practitioners as opposed to it being i guess just a purely literary phenomena well So we can distinguish, I think, two kind of sociological entities, maybe three, when we're talking about the readers of the Hermetica. I think I would be very comfortable talking about a Hermetic audience cult, Hmm. the the kind of sociological entity that um, there's lots of fan readers of the Hermetica, and they have what probably were like discussions amidst each other or among each other. And they shared hermetic texts and ideas. And we see this in the Nagamani library where the scribe says, I've got lots of hermetic treatises. 
I don't know which ones you have, so I'm mm. not going to record them all, but I'm going to give you what I think are the juicy bits. Mm. So <laughs> it's a shame as well, yeah, because we don't have the other ones. Right. Admittedly, that's my paraphrase. I mean, go read his little. Uh, of course, text. yeah, yeah. He 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 gives us uh, a bit of the perfect discourse or the Asclepius. Interestingly, apparently, the part he liked. Um, then we have the prayer of Thanksgiving and the discourse on the eighth and the ninth. And so that's that was entirely new. That latter treatise. So basically, we've got regional kind of communities it looks like in north africa what we call the asclepius took off and there were lots and lots of readers and lots of people in this audience call were christians hmm. because you know you had christians who were great enemies of the hermetic literature stodgy old people like augustine but then you had great fans um like like Tanctious and Arnobius, who are other North Africans. So there's a mixed response. Now, recently, a fair number of people like Christian Bull and to, exert, to a certain extent, Bauder Hanegraaff um, and others want to talk about distinctly hermetic groups, which I think it would be fair to say our communities in the sense of being more tight knit in their structure and social and emotional bonds. Mm -hmm. That's a sociological entity that, as I'd like to remind people, there's no external archaeological evidence for that. Um, Crispel talked of a hermetic lodge by analogy of the Masonic lodge, and it would be wonderful to find an inscription or some kind of foundation. I think it's like distinctly hermetic, yeah, that we can attribute it to it. Right. That sort of external evidence we are still utterly lacking. And mm. One of the things that interests me is that where we think that hermetic group or community was, Alexandria, probably in the late second or early third century, we would imagine that Christian authors in the vicinity, like Clement and Origen, would take note of them. Mm. But actually, they don't at all. And you might argue, well, that's simply because they didn't view them as competitors. That's right thing, yeah. They weren't Christians. They didn't, hermetic people didn't claim to be Christian. But they did have some obvious familiarity with the book of Genesis and the traditions of Hellenistic Judaism. So I am genuinely surprised by the silence there. Mm. I'm very much surprised by it, actually. So basically, you have to take a bit of a leap of faith and you have to say, well, the external evidence for 
a tight-knit hermetic community is extremely weak to non-existent. But the internal evidence is looking more and more promising because they do mention things like um, hymns, prayers, certain kinds of food, bloodless food. Right. They mention a holy embrace. There's clearly a model of a teacher-student relationship and an extremely close bond of discipleship. Now, the issue here, though, is, as any good writer of historical fiction will tell you, that there is the narrative representation of something, of a ritual or a social practice going on. And a lot of people, for whatever reason, in this day and age, are very much prepared to say that that narrative representation of social practices means that social practices were going on. I'm actually more skeptical, and I think that there is potentially an element of fiction going on here, fictionalizing, idealizing. I'm not in any way denying, you know, and I'm, I'm not trying to be curmudgeonly, I'm, I'm not in any way denying that there could well have been tight-knit hermetic communities run by, as Christian Bull says, these priests who lost their jobs or dis disenfranchised egyptian priests yeah right exactly that's the phrase i don't I, I don't wish to outright deny that but i i do continue to just remind people that until we get some external evidence i for my money am not willing to go gung-ho on a narrative representation so I suppose, you know, if Christianity died in the first century, you know, we'd be in the same boat because we'd have Paul's letters, but we wouldn't have any archaeological evidence of Christianity. But we would have the representation of them meeting in houses and having a meal and singing and whatever. So you know, it's possible, but uh, I'm not going to die in a ditch for it. Yeah. Well, it, like it, it reminds me, like the other thing I remember um, from reading sort of or something that's central, I think, to Christian Bull's argument is this idea of, um, especially with Hermes being this kind of god of, of you know, almost hermeneutics and translation in, in a kind of a way that there is, I guess what we can argue is, is an ideal hermetic author and an ideal hermetic audience or an ideal hermetic reader at the same time. So I guess the, the line of thought that we're, we're going down, I guess, is the extent to which kind of the, the textual tradition that we have or the literary tradition we have is representative of more of kind of like an idealized form or a literary form of hermetism versus how much of it was actually practiced and put into kind of the way of Hermes, essentially. Yeah, well, that ideal reader 
and also belong to an audience cult. Um, mm. So, yeah, that's where I'm prepared to think of hermetic networks. The way of Hermes, yes, that's that's interesting, right? Because on the one hand, you know, people like Wouter, Honograph, and, and myself included, I mean, we want to, we both see that there's a robust hermetic spirituality in these texts, and we don't want to deny that at all. And so then that would logically mean that we have to commit to the idea of a tight-knit, tight-knit spiritual group of hermetists who are implementing the spirituality. But again, I would say that I would just caution that I think, you know, one can engage in hermetic spirituality without the tight-knit group. You know, it, it's sort of like today, um, it, it you know, we would think of a YouTube phenomenon, you know, where lots of people, you know, are on YouTube and, you know, subscribe to various esoteric channels. They read the Reddit posts on, you know, hermitism and they're very informed and they're they're also very spiritual people. And they engage in the principles of hermetic spirituality, but they don't belong to a hermetic church or lodge or, or whatever. I rather think that something like that is also going on in antiquity. Um, at least that's where I would put most of my money at yeah. the moment. Mm. Yeah, it's it reminds me of I've seen a couple of of scholars, especially in the past sort of five ten years, sort of argue this is sort of a similar idea sometimes with Gnostic Gnostic texts that there is this kind of sometimes it's better to kind of consider them almost like a there's like a Gnostic spectrum almost or a continuum where it's like there are some some texts that display more distinctly Gnostic ideas and others that are leaning on you know not so many Gnostic ideas. But they're still kind of all considered Gnostics. Obviously, it's a second order, um, second order term. But to what extent, you know, can we see? I guess in your experience, is something similar true for, I guess, Hermetic text? Is it, could we even potentially see it as kind of a continuum or as a kind of a spectrum where you have, you know, this kind of amount of maybe different groups, whether they're connected or interconnected or not, but some of them are kind of leaning on, you know, more distinctly Hermetic ideas, and others not so much. Or well, I think we need to focus again on concrete evidence. Mm. And we can use the Nagamati Library to help us. In the Nagamati Library, or the, you know, if we don't want to call it a library, uh, a set of codices, we know that it includes Gnostic and Hermetic treatises, but it appears to be read by monks, maybe specifically Pacomian monks, who would identify as Christians or Catholics rather than Hermetists or Gnostics, even though they were reading their Egyptian heritage. Right. And maybe on a general level, we could say that they were following the principles of Gnostic and Hermetic spirituality. Probably none of them believed that the creator was evil, but they still read almost 30 texts which clearly portrayed the creator in either 
highly negative or at least um, somewhat neutral terms. So, or I should say kind of uh, terms in which he was clearly distinguished from the high deity. So, you know, it, it depends on what readers are reading for. You know, you, when you read a book or a, a book on spiritual wisdom, you don't agree with everything. Um, you can agree with 85% of it and get, get a lot out of it. But um, yeah, probably, at least in the case of Nagamati, most monks would not agree with, with hermetic writers that the world is a god or that the world is God, or that the world is the image of God. They're so biblically focused that they limit the image of God to humanity, classic Christian doctrine. But they're willing to read a text which says, no, the whole world is the image of God. And they're willing to benefit from that material, even if they don't buy it entirely, or it's not part of their no, it's not in the center of their tradition. They still read the material. Just like, I guess, you know, uh, uh, someone who's interested in Jewish or Christian spirituality today might read Sufi literature. You know, I mean, technically it's not in their tradition, but you can still benefit from it. And so I see in the reception of the Hermetic literature, it also has an Islamic reception, which I cover in the book Hermetica mm -hmm. too. It's got a long Christian reception. And uh, in the early period, at least, it had a Jewish, distinctly Jewish reception. So none of these particular readers, the readers that we can trace, are saying, oh, okay, now I'm going to give up my Judaism or, or my Christianity or my, you know, uh, submission to Allah and call myself a hermitist um, and join a hermetic conventicle. Um, I mean, <laughs> probably, I mean, certainly after the fourth century, there, that wasn't even an option. Mm. Um, but between the first and third century, we don't really know what was going on. Uh, but certainly we know that the readers are reading the hermetic material. They're benefiting from it but they aren't fundamentally changing their identity. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's, it's also in a, in a certain way, I guess, um, that kind of mirrors the shift of identity that even Hermes Fismagestus himself goes through, because obviously he, he passes through so many different traditions and he, you know, this as this kind of wisdom figure, kind of maybe pre-Christian prophet, is, is, he's argued in, in some uh, medieval texts. Um, but you know, Hermes as a figure is, is is kind of so all over the place as well, and he's sort of in every other tradition in in, in his own way, and he takes on you know the the masks and things that that particular tradition uh, tradition needs of him essentially, and this kind of feeds into another thing that I wanted to talk about about as well as the reception of Hermetic texts, I want to kind of touch on the reception of Hermes as a figure, uh, as a figure of, of perennial wisdom as a prophet, but. Um, especially one of the things that I, I guess I would be interested in is how how does the recep the reception of Hermes Trismegistus himself as a figure, well, arguably because I mean he's obviously connected with Hermetica, but as a figure himself, how does the reception of him differ between these different schools or these different religions? Whether he's received as a the father of sciences and techne, or as a kind of a pre-Christian prophet in the you know in, in, in the Christian scriptures and things like that as well. 
Well, right. So if I'm correct that there's no systematic hermetic theology, that means that Hermes is all things to all people. Mm. So you can make him say anything, and he is made to say almost everything. And ironically, that contributes to his reputation as knowing everything. And, and <laughs> so, so I, I mean, yes, if, if you were if you were interested in the history of science and you wanted to see Hermes as, you know, <clears throat> the inventor of pr primeval science and you could look to the alchemical stuff, you could look to him as inventor of war machines, you could look to him as, you know, he's portrayed in some of these texts as, you know, knowing all about metals and about the stars and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that's not necessarily everybody's Hermes. That's not everybody's cup of tea. And, you know, depending on your interests, you will look to him for other things. Those who are interested in the Renaissance, they portray the electrifying impact of Hermes as a pre-Mosaic prophet. But, of course, that doesn't mean that you know, he's outside of the biblical traditions because, you know, in the Islamic sources, they're, they're, some of them are happy to identify him as simply a pre-Diluvian sage like Enoch. Sometimes, I mean, he is Enoch. Um, so he's still, you can still absorb him in the biblical tradition. And at that point, you know, when you reach the very late antiquity in the Middle Ages, there's no, you know, native indigenous herm hermetist from Egypt standing up and saying, how dare you appropriate my tradition? And by the way, you know, <laughs> Egyptians are so much older than what you imagine. I mean, they're mm. even older than your biblical calendars. Um, but that didn't stop, that didn't stop Christians, chronographers and Islamic chronographers from simply fitting him somewhere in the pre-Diluvian era and, you know, still believing that the universe is only 5,500 years uh, of age. So, you know, he is, he is literally all things to all people. You, you could have a purely magical Hermes, I guess, like something in the Picatrix or something like that. If you wanted to, that could be your whole focus. Um, and I think, you know, Christians, they also want to see him, uh, as well as Muslims, they want to see uh, him prophesying uh, a version of monotheism. I mean, that's a hard one. Mm. have to struggle hard with that yeah, um, they have to reach a little bit for it yeah yeah <laughs> but you know, you know I, I mean again the, at least in the christian tradition there's this this whole emphasis on typically they focus on jewish prophets of christ but eventually they get around to incorporating the sibyl and uh hermes 
and you only have to, you know, learn theology from Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, uh, you know, look up and you see the Sibyl alongside Jeremiah. And, you know, so Christians are able to integrate Hermes and in a sense, I guess, domesticate him um, and uh, plug him into their tradition so that he's not a threat. And that's really the accomplishment of the, of the Renaissance. Of course, you could also argue that, yeah, he never really ceases to burst the bounds of, of the tradition. And so nowadays, yeah, you can have, we're back to a purely pagan Hermes, and that's fine to, you know, again, he's all things to all people. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess part of one thing that I'm interested in is is what I guess also makes Hermes able to be received by by later Christian tradition as well. Like the thing that comes to mind, as you mentioned there, um, a lot of the Christian tradition is drawing on, I guess, all the Jewish prophets to start with, and, and even Hermes himself. In, in even in the Corpus Medicum, we have certain Jewish influences. I'm thinking of sort of Corpus Medicum three. I think uh, arguably is sort of redacted and quotes Genesis in certain uh, portions when it talks about the creation of different reptiles and water animals, things like that. So, do you think the the kind of the the Jewish or Hellenistic Jewish portions in you know corpuses like the Corpus Medicum, for example, they aided in sort of Hermes's sort of rece uh, receptivity into Christianity later on. Well, of course, yeah. And, you know, a book that nobody reads anymore, but is still right. worth noting is Dodd's The Bible and the Greeks. Hmm. And he talks about Hermetism and, as you say, Hellenistic Judaism. And it's not only Corpus Hermeticum III, you've, you've also got the quote from Genesis in the Primandres, hmm. you know, the be fruitful and multiply bit, um, or, or you you multiply in multiplying, I forget yeah. the exact terminology. But it's clear that whoever is writing these tractates knows at least bits and pieces of the Septuagint. And if you ask me, you know, I, I think it's often a mistake made by people that, okay, so that has to mean direct contact with Hellenistic Judaism. Well, not necessarily, because certainly the by the second century, and especially by the third, really the keepers of the Septuagint are actually Christians. The Jews are starting to basically uh, eliminate it from their synagogue readings, and they're switching to other translations like Symmachus. So I think that that could be just as good evidence as contact with Christians um, who are reading the Septuagint and have basically assimilated that aspect of, of Judaism. And, but in the end, yeah, I mean, we don't know, maybe we don't want to argue. Mm. Maybe we don't want to make too strict a, a distinction, but certainly in Alexandria, we know that by 117, the, the Jewish population had been, decimated in a vast pogrom. So who's upholding the Jewish tradition between 117 and about 250? Well, they were probably still Jews around, but they had lost a lot of their cultural and symbolic capital. So really the, the, the people engaging with the Septuagint in Alexandria, to me, are Christians 
primarily. And they are also the first receivers of the Hermetica. Hmm. So, so the crystal early Christians would have potentially formed, but like a, maybe even a part, a part of the, the early sort of ideal audience almost, or maybe Christians were reading these early texts. Absolutely. No, it's a, it's a fact. Yeah. So you've got Tertullian yeah. and uh, he's, he's big in North Africa for whatever reason. Um, Tertullian, uh, for, for whatever reason, uh, we have to wait till Cyril of Alexandria to get big interaction with Hermetic thought. Mm. Um, the great mystery is why Clement and Origen don't seem to um, care too much, although that, you know, for most people is presumably the heyday of the Hermetic movement. Mm. Um, so that continues to be a mystery. Uh, but yeah, as we move on in time, more and more Christians take note of it and mm. choose how they want to deal with Hermes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because the, the, I mean, the, the one that's coming to mind, like right off the top of my head, the most important one is probably Augustine with City of God. He quite extensively quotes the Asclepius. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, um, he's greatly threatened by Hermetic thought for whatever reason. Um, takes an extremely oppositional stance. Well, we know the reason. It's just because he thinks that it's idolatry that is promoted in the Asclepius. So he's willing to jettison the entire tradition and to give the most ruthless and often insensitive attack. Um, and yeah, then... That, that successfully kind of cooled off, you know, at least Christians in the West sort of, uh, they cool off from venerating and appreciating Hermes. And, uh, but in the East, yeah, you still got quite significant engagement up until late antiquity. And then of course, when the Muslims take over in Egypt, they very quickly find a way to deal with Hermes as well. Don't ignore him at all. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the the Arabic tradition of of Hermes and and even the Arabic Hermetica in general is is still kind of to a certain extent still being studied and coming into its own in scholarship. But it's still uh, it hasn't extensively been studied. I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No. I mean, the the more the merrier because that reception, again, it shows just how easily. Uh, vigorous monotheistic tradition can still make use of Hermes. Um, I suppose, again, if there were living Hermetic communities, we would call it appropriation mm. and maybe even, you know, wrongful appropriation. But if we're just wanting to be neutral, it is part of the reception history. And that's all that I try to show in, in, in my book. It's got a very long reception history, very rich. Mm. Yeah, so what, so that, that, let's talk a little bit um, very briefly about your book then, because um, I, I I love it. It's amazing uh, as as expected. Um, but I'm, I'm just curious, um, having having read uh, like Bob um newest one, the Hermetic Spirituality, he's very um, meticulous, I guess, with uh, translation choices and and sort of re reintroducing kind of neologisms um, back into kind of English because he kind of 
you know, talks about this idea how English maybe isn't the best language to be able to sort of translate concepts across like noose logos, whatever it is. Um, so were there any kind of sort of conventions or approaches you took when you were translating, I guess, the Stobay and Hematica or all the, the fragments um, to kind of do do something similar uh, or bearing, bearing in mind kind of, well, I, I guess what I'm asking is, is what was your hermeneutical approach when you were translating? Well, translators can take a number of approaches, uh, but I think a translation should be a translation. Like a, a literal translation? No, no, no. I, I think that I think that we should avoid just transliterating Greek words hmm. and putting them into the English um, in general. There are certain words that have been adopted by um, that, that have that have gotten uh, a widespread use, one of them being gnosis. That's sort of been ad adopted as a calc into English. Gnosis is is just common enough where you can just get by talking about gnosis, I mm -hmm. think. That's that's my sense of how people speak on YouTube anyway. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about something like noose, okay, I noose we're not there yet. Mm, <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, no average person knows what noose is. Yeah. Um, so I I quite applaud. I, I mean, Bowker is right on target when he says, you know, when we're talking about noose and noesis, we're talking about some something higher than rationality. We're talking about something deep and something that is doesn't really have much to do with um normal human cognition mm. and so if we if we use um yeah terms like you know thinking or conceiving even imagining um we are not going to get to what noose or noesis really meant. And he's right about that. But of course, someone could say that, well, you know, English, if we've gotten it wrong in the past, we can still try to get it right. And, you know, we're not there yet. So what I decided to do in Hermeticus 2 is to translate noose by consciousness. Hmm. And what I meant there was something more like cosmic consciousness, um, higher than normal radiocination, higher than uh, normal human cognition. And... I mean, I, I think Bauter did say and can easily say that consciousness um, that has a range of of senses in English, and yeah, we would need to maybe add something like deep consciousness, or or just throw in cosmic consciousness there, or something like that, in in order to to make clear that we're talking about a vivid and deep-seated, deep-rooted form of super-rational cognition. Hmm. So I completely take that point. And uh, that's why I, I, I tell people in the book that that's what I'm doing 
And so you can be aware of what I'm doing. And I try to be consistent, at least, in in what I'm doing. But in the end, yeah, we haven't found the, the perfect translation. What I will say, though, you know, and it, this is important to keep in mind, just in terms of Greek, that noeo, which is uh, the verbal form of, of nous and uh, noesis, I mean, that has quite a range of meanings in Greek as well. It's it's not like it couldn't mean think. I mean, mm. it, it can mean to think or to imagine uh, or to conceptualize. But I think Bowder's point, and it's a good one, is that specifically in the Hermetic literature, it means something deeper or higher than that. Typically. Right, they have they have the kind of they're using their own meaning, and it's not just for for nous either. They have kind of their own their own meaning for a lot of general sort of philosophical Greek terms, whether it's logos or I think ion is used uh, differently because usually it means eternity. But um, I think Corpus Medicum eleven uses it in a different kind of context to mean something like the imaginative faculty of of God or something or within within God or something like that. Um, I think I think I think both actually did an did an, did an article on it. Um, a few years ago, actually, now I'm thinking about it, but I can't remember what, the, what it's called off the top of my head. But yes, uh, carry on. They they use uh, multiple different terms in in different contexts, I guess. Right. Yeah. So I own that's another example, and that's everywhere. That's in Gnostic literature. That's mm. in the New Testament. That's that's in Hermetic literature. That's another tricky one because again, mm. in in English. You know, we can talk about the aeons, you know, there is an English aeon, E-O-N, uh, which obviously comes from I own. Um, but yeah, that doesn't really work as a as a translation. Um, and the, the important thing to keep in mind there is what I would tell, you know, anyone working on Greek with me is simply that, yeah, I own has a spatial or a temporal meaning. Uh, temporal, mm-hmm. Temporally, it can refer to eternity or the entire span of life, of a human life, or spatially, it can refer to a realm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people who, who translate Gnostic literature, they just say, yeah, we're going to use Ion. We're not going to try to translate that. And again, I, I I push back on that and I say, okay, well, with Ion, we're never going to be able to get absolute consistency, but we should still translate it. So mm. sometimes we're going to have to translate it in spatial terms. Sometimes we're going to have to translate it in temporal terms. And that becomes the translator's choice. But if the word hasn't yet reached a level where it's common English, I don't think we, I, I think it is problematic, potentially even a bit lazy, just to leave it in transliterated form. Because in the end, either the reader is going to know what the word means because they have learned Greek, or there's been a long footnote explanation of what's going on, or they're not. And the the people in the not category are probably about 95% of just people picking up my book in a bookstore. They're not going mm. to 
they're not going to, they, they need the translator to do some of that work for them. And so that's my strategy. And of course, I let everyone know what the strategy is hmm. so that, you know, if they're reading the footnotes, they will gather that. Yeah. Yeah. It may, it may, yeah. Makes total sense. Um, so uh, the last, I have, I have like one or two more questions uh, just, just taken from, um, I guess, our, our, my community in general. I had a couple of people ask uh, a couple of questions when I said I was having you on. Um, so if we could just go over them real quick, that'd be, that'd be brilliant. Um, so I, uh, one of them, let's have a look here. Um, okay, yes, this was an interesting one. So we mentioned, um, we mentioned Augustine, uh, especially in, in, in City of God, kind of being very oppositional to, to uh, the Asclepius, uh, especially. Is there any kind of evidence that we have? Is, is Augustine really the first to do that and take a very oppositional stance to something distinctly hermetic? Or do we have any any kind of, whether it's literary evidence, I guess what it would be, but um, authors maybe in, in a Christian sense or anyone being very distinctly anti-hermetic in the same way that, you know, Hippolytus or, uh, is, is doing with Gnosticism and they're doing with all the Gnostic polemicals. Do we have anything equivalent, uh, whether it's from Christian sources or Jewish sources or anything that are, uh, in, in late antiquity, at least, prior to Augustine, are being anti-hermetic? Well, interestingly, in North Africa, and we have to think regionally here, mm. um, Gus, as we might call him, is the outlier, and he basically ruins it and sours it for the entire Western tradition. It's mm. interesting that Tertullian and uh, Lactantius and Arnobius who are our three heavy-hitting North African theologians prior to Augustine, uh, they're okay with Hermes. I mean, in general, like uh, uh, Arnobius is, is maybe not quite so fulsome in his praise, but Langtanctius, you know, takes Hermes as, you know, he's he's his man and is uh, mm. as good as any other prophet. And Tertullian... Mm -hmm um yeah is as kind of rigid and kind of conservative as the north african tradition always was he he's not oppositional um and you know there's a certain local pride because hermes gets associated with apuleius and actually the asclepius is attributed to apuleius and gets transmitted with his works um and so if you have any, you know, local pride in your great North African philosopher slash novelist, uh, there's- Right, they're, they're, gonna, they're gonna try and defend him as much as they can. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's that. And, and, you know, and so until about, you know, the 420s, when Augustine's, you know, ruthless, systematic, overwhelming, you know, sarcastic condemnation, of of the Asclepius comes down the pike, you know. Until that point, North Africans were surprisingly <laughs> quite pro hermetic, yeah, quite quite pleased with Hermes. Um, and again, in in that case, you know, we cannot at all speak of hermetic communities, but we can certainly say that there's uh, Christian readership of the hermetic literature, um, at least the hermetic literature that made it into Latin. And they were all pretty positive until we get to Augustine. Um, and in other areas, it, it, it 
it, it signifies other other things. So again, just check out my book. I, I I'm not utterly comprehensive. I mean, I'm sure there will be people who will, will find stuff that I didn't, but I, I try to be comprehensive, especially for antiquity. Hmm. Um, so you can see who's positive and, and, and who is is negative. But I would say that, you know, looking in Egypt as well, among Jewish and early Christian authors, until we get to Cyril, who's sort of like the Augustine of the East, I guess, um, there's a generally, you know, an open-minded attitude toward Hermes and Hermetic literature. Hmm. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's interesting. It strikes me because Augustine is is primarily working off the Asclepius. I mean, do we do we is there any references to anything other than the Asclepius in in Augustine? Because like, what's coming like coming to mind with me is, is the Asclepius is kind of it's it's very distinct. Like, because he he objects to it on idolatrous grounds, like you said, right? And I would I would assume he's he's reacting against kind of the whole discussions of of statue animation and us making gods and all that kind of thing, right? Yes. Yeah, so if Augustine uh, had gotten his Egyptology degree or uh, had taken a course in Egyptology, right. you know, <laughs> the ceremonies of the opening of the mouth and how to enliven a statue. I, I think he um, he would have understood what was going on in the Asclepius. But um, from his perspective, you know, in his late 60s as a bishop in Hippo, he is, is just floored by the invocation of the demonic and just see Satan everywhere. Mm. Augustine famously um, doesn't really read Greek, not well anyway. He can, you know, work, he, he forces himself to work through several Psalms and he can identify Greek words and tell you what their meanings are, but he's not really a reader of Greek. So yes, it appears that the only treatise that he had access to was the Asclepius because of the language barrier. Mm. And that's unfortunate for Augustine, but uh, yeah, he never, never quite mastered. Yeah. Because it, it, it makes me wonder, I guess, in that case, if he, if he would have been more receptive to say, if he got his hands on, on the text that we now call the Corpus Semeticum or even in, on the, the Stabaeans, because there's not as much, in the case of the uh, Corpus Semeticum, there's almost no mention of, of statue animation or sort of the, you know, those idolatrous practices, if he would have been more receptive to something like that instead. Well, right. And that that's just the point that, yeah, from the perspective of the native Egyptian or Hermetic thinker, those aren't idolatry that's you know the christian name for yeah sacred statues we don't like um <laughs> <laughs> even though we have a number of our own you know i mean mm. i mean so yes absolutely um there's a lot to like um and you know one one thing one point that i'll mention is um in the christian tradition there is in Alexandria this tradition of the god human, what I'd like to refer to as theanthropy, the view that God is a primal human. Mm. Um, that shows up in the Poimandres. It shows up in the treatise of Eugnostus in Nagamati. It shows up in Valentinus. Um, and so... For whatever reason, like if I if if I was thinking that antiquity was logical, hmm. 
Um, and we knew that the Poimandres was an early treatise. I would think that Valentinus and Eugnostus and others uh, would be like, yeah, we believe in the God human. And, you know, Hermes Trismegistus, our boy, talked about this in the Poimandres. You know, they never do that. Um, <laughs> which probably signifies that the Poimandres really isn't second century, but probably third. Probably but again, we don't, yeah. we don't know. We, we really don't know. But that's one of these hermetic ideas that at least early, uh, at least second and third century Christians in Alexandria, they they like that idea and they run with it. Hmm. So that, I would say that's positive reception, probable reception. Right, yeah. They never cite it. Right, of course. I, I, I'd be curious as well, because um, I know um, Wilberg's uh, new translation of the Hermetica is coming out, I think, uh, hopefully either, uh, or hopefully next year. Um, but I, I remember he, when I read some of his papers, he's arguing arguably for an, an, an earlier date for some of the Hermetic tractates, um, potentially back into the Hellenistic period or first, second century. Um, what do you make of it out of curiosity? Well, Bilberg is going to change everything, and and either um, you will hate him or you will love him because, mm. um, basically, and I was a reviewer for his book, so I mm. know what's coming. Right. Uh, but yeah, he will tell you that lots and lots of things in the Corpus Hermeticum, which is again is the Byzantine collection. Right. I, which I've tried to, you know, appeal to all your listeners and viewers. That's not necessarily the center, you know. <laughs> right. It's it's just one of many things. Yeah. It's just 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 a, I mean, almost like a random Christian collection of Hermetic treatises. Yeah. But what his argument, his primary argument, is that the Christians who passed that set of treatises along, um, not all of them Christians, but but many of them, um, there were also, you know, astrologers in the mix who yeah. put in a bunch of things. But basically, his thesis is that there's massive amount of interpolation, so like marginal, marginalia editing and stuff from the margins that has worked its way into the main text. And so, that's this is why I'll say you'll either hate Bilderberg or you'll love him because you'll hate him. When you find out that all your, you know, favorite hermetic passages, the beautiful, um, boisterous language and all the astrological materials and, and you know, all of that is going to get cut. All mm. of it. All of it. Wow. So, um, <laughs> so, so what you think is the hermetica, Bilderberg is going to tell you, actually, that's interpolation. Um so then people are going to have to, you know, uh, pivot and, you know, I'm sure there'll be a variety of strategies like, oh, well, it's still hermetic, even though it's it's interpolated. And you right. know, it's, it's just now, now it's just Christian hermetic and it's fine. <laughs> you know, they'll try to protect the material, of I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but. I, I mean, my basic response to Wildberg is. Um, there are some cases where he's right on and some cases where this is more like intuition. 
Like, mm. Because it, it's a matter of saying like, okay, if we take this bit out, then the other bits connect better. And it's mm. like, uh, do they? I, I mean, it, 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 it's a little bit like that. So, you know, um, when his book comes out, I'm sure we'll have many, many podcasts and yeah, uh, reactions yeah. to it. Um, I won't lay all my chips on the table, but I, I don't think that this will be universally accepted. I think this will remain highly controversial. In terms of the dating, yes, that is also very controversial. He's absolutely right that when you strip away what he considers to be the interpolations in some of the tractates, like in Corpus Hermeticum, what's now known as 16, um, that he is able then to go back and say, oh, well, we've got all these native Egyptian parallels that go back to the second century BCE. Mm. So there's no reason why this material can't be pre-Christian. But of course, then the historical question is, is it? I mean, you know, you can find a parallel in the third century BCE, but does that mean that your text goes back that far? Right. I don't know. Again, that will be um, something for you and your viewers to ponder very carefully. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Well, that's the end of my questions, <laughs> as far as I can tell my list. Um, so uh, I want to make sure I give you a, a second or two to uh, sort of do shameless self-plug, because I know you have uh, your own YouTube channel where you are doing uh, or giving out some lectures and things, and you also have your own Patreon. So can we talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, so just briefly, yeah, I don't... Um... The YouTube channel is is just more or less a hobby. I don't have the technical skills to you know produce amazing you know graphics or anything like that. But you'll find there lots of uh, basically PowerPoints and um, other kinds of material where I look through the Nicenes and I'm now doing a series on the Secret Book of John. And if you want the, and I've done a full series on the Nagamati Library and these alternative Christian groups um, found Christ, based on my book, Found Christianities. Um, and yeah, but if you want the, where I really put in most of the effort and where you'll find the, the full series and uh, reflections and a lot of my summaries of modern scholarship, you'll find all that on Patreon. And so, um, yeah, check that out. Um, you don't have to subscribe anymore just to check out the, the content. Um, so you can look at what's on there and decide if it's for you and uh yeah i appreciate all the support um that people are happy to give yeah brilliant and i'll i'll link everything down below so people can uh find you very as easily as possible as well so <laughs> thanks all right well uh dr well thank you so much for coming on and answering all our questions and talking it's, this has been brilliant excellent chris thank you